Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we'll be reviewing the new video game reboot film, Tomb Raider from Square Enix, and talking about an old classic uh, comic book movie, or at least I think it should be considered a classic, uh, the James Mangold film, Logan. But first, the news to springboard right off of Logan into some comic book stuff. AMC has announced a 31-hour marathon of marvel films leading into avengers infinity war 31 hours 11 marvel films andy what what is this exactly okay so as a promotional thing uh to get ready for infinity war amc is hosting like it says 31 hours of film of all the marvel films leading up to infinity war and it'll actually play infinity war an hour or so earlier it'll start at 6 p.m i guess on friday um the day it comes out so it's a it's a huge thing to try and remember everything that happens or that has happened in the last 10 years leading up to uh infinity war right it's there's 18 marvel movies out okay so to be clear this is definitely cutting some out of rotation to very quickly roll through the list i'll give you the hits iron man hulk thor captain america the first one the avengers then you get guardians of the galaxy avengers 2 age of ultron captain america civil war which was basically avengers 3 but whatever doctor strange the new spider-man homecoming black panther and then avengers infinity war so you get a little bit of everything in here you're missing iron man 2 and 3 you're missing thor 2 I'm sure there's a couple others I'm thinking of that aren't in there. Um, Winter Soldier. Winter, uh, yeah, you're right. Winter Soldier's out. That's odd. You'd think that'd be in there. Um, clearly, they're just kind of streamlining it because at 31 hours, that's already pretty intense. Have you ever been to any kind of movie marathon in a theater like this? No, I I haven't. I've thought about it. Like, you know, for Star Wars, they, they've done this where they'll play the whole trilogy in a day. And... I, I just can't bring myself to do it. I whenever I marathon, I like to do like one movie a day. Like when I, whenever I was getting ready for the Last Jedi, I watched the entire saga, but just one film, starting with Episode One through the Force Awakens, just one film a day. And I like having some time between films to kind of decompress and take in everything I've seen and think about it and talk about it. Um, it just kind of helps me absorb the property a little bit better. I couldn't imagine just sitting through film after film after film. I've done some movie marathons at theaters. I've done three specifically that I can think of. The first was in anticipation of The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, at a AMC, we did Batman Begins and then The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises. And I took a break during Dark Knight. I went I went out for like an hour and like walked around because uh, it was in a little like shopping center. Took a break, relaxed, got some food, like... Took it easy because it's exactly what you said. You need breathing room. You need a little bit of time to decompress. In any marathon, when you sit for that long in the same room with people watching what came before in anticipation of what is to come, the movie you're sitting there to see, the feature, as it were, by the time you get to the feature, you're kind of desensitized. You know, you're kind of uncomfortable and you're ready to get up and take a walk. But the next one I did was in anticipation of the Avengers, actually. It was Iron Man 1, 2, Hulk, Thor, and I think... Yeah, Captain America were in there. Right. Um, and I actually missed like the first two because I'd been in class. I was in college at the time. Uh, so I only caught like three of those, but not too bad. The The other one was in anticipation of Edgar Wright's The World's End. We watched the Cornetto trilogy and that was at AMC as well. That was Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and then The World's End, which was great because we were at an AMC where they had food. So you could like get a beer. So, like, everybody got a pint before the world's end because it's a movie about drinking. But um, 
So all in all, not so bad. But those are much shorter than 31 hours at most. I think I think Avengers was the longest one at something like nine or ten hours. Yeah, and I and I missed a chunk of it. Even then, it's still tough to sit in a theater for that long, surrounded by the same people watching movies. Like it gets rough. And and one of the first things I, I thought uh, turned out to be relevant in the Reddit thread where this was announced uh, or where it got popular, really. Somebody was quick to say, you know, they did this for, like, Avengers Age of Ultron or something. Uh, and <laughs> apparently it was, like, 16 hours. They said people were miserable by the end of that 16 I'm, hours. I'm sure. Oh, my God. Yeah. because like, I, I feel like you're not going to actually enjoy it. By the time you get to Infinity War, you're not going to enjoy it because you're going to be, like, sleep-deprived and cranky. You're probably getting, like, bed sores by that point for being in the theater chair. <laughs> right. The, there's no way you can do it, the whole thing. And if you can, you're insane, and nobody should want to sit in a theater next to you because you're the kind of person who would do something like that. And that was part of it. Like, the Avengers thing, I remember, is five movies. Like, there was some guy, during the first one I was, I was there for, which was, like, the third movie, who was, like, on his phone or something. I had to deal with that guy for all the movies. Like he was there the whole time. Yeah. The person with the rowdy kid in the back, like they're not going anywhere. Like you're, you're on this journey together and, and you've been to the movies, you know who you're sitting in with. Like you have to endure that in a marathon fashion. Who would want to do that for 31 hours? Who would put themselves through that? Now I can I appreciate a good marathon. I mean, you, you marathon at marathon, I should say. You spread it out a little bit, but the Star Wars movies in anticipation of The Last Jedi, right? You, but you yeah. did that at home. Yeah, that's exactly. That's reasonable. That, that I can get behind. Um, trying to do it for AMC, like, this just comes off as more of, like, you know, a publicity stunt, unless of, like, a real people are actually going to do this, because it's, it's insane. Right. I mean, I'm sure some people will sign up just to say that they did it and it's almost just an exercise in endurance and bragging rights like i i survived the great marathon yeah now just like um i was really excited to, to t talk to you about this i don't think i did but i, I might have uh there there was a guy in the reddit thread when this was announced that was like hey uh would anybody be interested in watching a i think i think it's an 18 hour cut of the 18 previous Marvel films cut together and edited by a fan uh, to kind of cut out the fluff and have enough from every movie to lead up to Infinity War. Because I've been working on it and I'm like six hours in and my wife and I have been watching it and we love it. And I'll totally upload it and give it to you guys if anybody's interested. Naturally, it gets like a million people that were into it. And I shot him a message. I was like, what the hell? I'll check that out. So I'm hoping that pans out just like the Star Wars Despecialized Edition. That would be cool. Um, to watch kind of a, a, cut, a cut that way. Um, I don't know. I obviously couldn't watch it all at once. Um, and for all I know, that could have been just some, some guy trolling, be, being funny. Um, but I like to think that's legit. That, that would be cool. So if, that, if I get that, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot you a copy somehow. Sure. I don't know how I would... What, would you burn that to a Blu-ray? It's 18 hours, for God's sake. Anyway, our next story. Uh, Wrinkle in Time director, director Ava DuVernay uh, to helm DC's new gods following the success i suppose is the word i would use of a wrinkle in time uh ava duvernay has already landed a new gig with warner brothers to direct dc's new gods i know absolutely nothing about <laughs> new gods before i reading this headline uh you're a comic book reader what, what is this about okay so the new gods is this uh, pretty important property that was invented by uh, jack kirby um who also invented um, you know, a lot of other uh, big DC properties. Um, and to simplify it, it's kind of like Thor. It 
deals with like gods outside of DC. In fact, outside of like the the DC multiverse, they, yeah. they exist like outside of time and space. And there's basically two two planets. You have New Genesis, who are the good guys led by the High Father, which sounds very similar to Asgard and Odin, who is like, a, a little the, similar. All, sure, you know the All Father. The All Father. So there's some similarities similarities there. And then you also have Dark Side and Apocalypse, which is who, which is who I have heard a, a lot of a lot more. The planet is Apocalypse. Dark Side is the like the big bad. Huh. And he he's been hinted at coming as as he was going to be the big villain. I think in like Justice League Two, he was hinted at in I think Batman vs Superman. They mentioned him in Justice League. Oh wow! So I he was supposed to I think eventually grace the screen, and so this is probably going to be their first introduction. Um, but this is a real challenge because it's you have a new property with new characters, and it's out. It's in a more fantastical realm for comic books. Um, so there's a real challenge in getting people familiar with these characters and getting them excited and wanting to see. Um, and it's basically a big family drama. It's a big. I mean, again, like Thor, it's a big royal family squabble. Mm-hmm. So why, and you didn't see Wrinkle in Time, um, why do you think, I, before the show I talked about uh, Colin Trevorrow and, and making an indie film, uh, I forget the name of it, I was going to say it was Do Not Disturb, I, I don't recall, but he made an indie film which landed him uh, Jurassic Jurassic World, which immediately catapulted him into uh, uh, Star Wars Episode Nine, which he, he's been removed from uh, producing and, and swapped with J.J. Abrams. But it seems like people who make little indies that have even remote success are immediately getting put into bigger shoes. Uh, okay, great. You, you did pretty good there. Great. Here's a bigger property. And then following Wrinkle in Time, here's arguably even a bigger property, especially for a studio like DC, who could, I mean, couldn't hurt, right? Like... I yeah, argue they need the help. At this point, um, it, they just keep trying some new stuff. Right. Why Why do you think that is? Why, why are we in a place where any director who seems to have even a, a, a modicum of success is given something bigger and heavier right away? I mean, used to be back in the day, you wanted something like this, you had to earn it. I mean, people like Spielberg weren't just thrown properties, all right? Like, they had to they had to really work for something like this. Martin Scorsese had to work his whole life to get to, to make Silence, like the movie he always wanted to make, right? Um, what is this about? Why, why are, why are small-time directors getting big-time roles? So, I read an article about this one time, and one of the, the reasons they said was, Direct new directors, especially when they've been given big projects and haven't had a lot of work, are easier to control. They're easier for the studio to say, "Hey, this is what we want." They put up less of a fight than someone like Ridley Scott or maybe Chris Nolan or these other big directors who have big vision of what they want. With the small guys, they're they're just happy to be there, so they're like, "Okay, that's what you want us to do for sure." Yeah, I, I guess I can get that. That that does actually make a little bit more sense that. that they're going to play ball versus like a big time director who's more of an auteur who's going to do what they want because these people are just trying to uh, sharpen their teeth, I guess. Um, even still, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's a good way for studios to be going. You know, just like this, throw, throw it to this person. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I, I mean, that's how you find a diamond in a rough, after all. If you never try, you never know. But you know, Wrinkle in Time, Wrinkle in Time got forty on Rotten Tomatoes. Obviously, Rotten isn't the end all be all, but like. Clearly, it's not crushing at the box office, and and already you're like, yep, 
she's in. That's who we're going for. It seems like you guys are are fielding people in advance. Oh, she's working on Wrinkle in Time. Give her a call. So she wants to make a Marvel movie. Like you're not even or DC movie. You're not even seeing how the movie comes out. You're just signing whoever you can. Um, it just seems short sighted. Right. She did do uh, Selma. She did, which, which was Oscar nom- nominated right. for for several uh, different categories, and and Selma was excellent. Um, so maybe that's that's part of it too. To be fair, um, A Wrinkle in Time, while it had a lot of things in it that I, I, I disagreed with, I didn't think the writing was that great, um, there were definitely some, I guess, experimental decisions as far as filmmaking is concerned that were intriguing. There were shots in there that I was like, oh, that's kind of cool, or like clever clever costume design. Like the way elements are kind of weaved together, like there's something there. There's a nugget in there, right? There's a, there's, there's a diamond in the rough, like I said earlier. Um, so I am excited to see what she does, does next. I am. I, I will go check out New Gods. Like, it sounds kind of cool. I just, it's concerning, I guess, especially uh, following in the wake of, yeah, Colin Trevorrow, who I, I don't know what he's doing now, but um, something to watch out for, I guess. I, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Well, the last thing I'll, I'll say about New Gods is, like I said, so Darkseid is, he's a pretty big deal in the DC universe. He's He's essentially the equal of Thanos who is who we're going to see in Infinity War. Right. So he's like the biggest of the biggest bad guys there is, you know, he's as strong as Superman. He has the Omega beam which like shoots from his eyes and it gets really weird with some of this stuff though. You, you like <laughs> like I w- I was reading The Final Crisis which is the Grant Morrison um you know, a kind of famous comic story. Sure. And it's like take taking place outside of time and space and like Batman gets killed and gets sent back through time. Like it's it's some really bizarre stuff. So we'll see how much of that they kind of um, give to us. To be fair, a Wrinkle in Time definitely has some bizarre stuff too. Not quite like that, um, but some abstract things. And I think maybe they can look at a material, like what she did with that kind of thing and then the way she decided to... to point audiences and think you know maybe there's an accessible way to get new gods across here and you're right with a little bit of studio control they might be able to kind of uh backseat drive their way into um a really successful property so yeah i'll check it out for all i know hey it could be great um but at the same time it's worth understanding that maybe maybe not that being said, our last second to last story. I'm sorry. Yeah, I forgot. I forgot about the one on the end. Shia LaBeouf will play his own father in a movie about himself. This is from Entertainment Weekly, not The Onion. For anybody curious, yes, in a movie, in a movie, ba- loose, in a movie loosely based on his own life. Wow, Shia LaBeouf will play his law-breaking, alcohol-abusing father to himself in a movie called Honey Boy, which was his childhood nickname. <laughs> you found this story. You know a little bit more about it than me. If, if, fill me in here. What are the details? I, mean, there I, I is, love that there you're is, laughing about this. Yeah. <laughs> There's just so much in that, just that headline that's ridiculous. I mean, where do oh, we sure. even start? I mean, he's like in his 30s. Why, why are you writing a biopic already? You know, Why are you p- playing your own father? That seems really strange and kind of conflict of interest. Um, I mean, all I know is that he wrote the screenplay that is loosely based on his younger self. You know, it's not a biopic per per se, but it is based on his childhood. And for whatever reason, he's decided he wants to play his alcoholic and abusive father Mm. um, in the film. So we'll see. We'll see what that's all about. It, it, It all seems very bizarre. 
There's this article that came out not too long ago, and maybe we should have covered it on the show, but I think it was kind of, we had a lot of news that week. Anyway, it was, it was about Brendan Fraser, the the, the, kid, the actor from The Mummy and uh, George of the Jungle, uh, Looney Tunes back in action. And it was about his kind of return to form in uh, the television series Trust, directed by Danny Boyle on FX, I think. Uh, it's It's coming out. Anyway. He's kind of making a, making a short return to the screen, and, and and it was interviewing him and talking about his his kind of absence from the limelight and what he's been up to. And he talked about in the end of it uh, his appearance in Looney Tunes back in action. And if for those of you who didn't see that movie in Looney Tunes back in action, Brendan Fraser plays a stuntman to Brendan Fraser. He's he's his own stuntman in the movie, right? There's a fictional version of Brendan Fraser, and he plays like. The kind-hearted, loving stuntman. And at the end of the movie, at the end of Looney Tunes Back in Action, Brendan Fraser, the actor, like as a stuntman character, punches Brendan Fraser, the actor, in the face. And in this GQ article, uh, Brendan Fraser says that part of the reason, in fact, a big reason he took this role is because at the time he didn't understand where he stood in Hollywood and didn't really get what he was doing and didn't get it. And he wanted the opportunity to play a douchey version of himself and get punched in the face by a good, kind-hearted version of himself. That was like something he wanted to do. Very self-indulgent. Doesn't make sense. He's an actor. He was in a Looney Tunes movie, all right? I'm not saying he's, he's genius. <laughs> I'm just saying that's what happened. And when I see a story like this, it's all I can think about. What are you doing? Like, how self-indulgent does this have to be that you write a screenplay about yourself now that you can't land a role and you're going to play your abusive dad? Like, what is that? Why would you do that? What, what are you hoping to gain from that? Like, by, by unleashing that on the world? Um, I mean, it almost you, sounds... What do you think that's going to do for you? Yeah. It almost sounds like a spoof or like an SNL skit. It's like... It does. The story of me starring me, written right. and directed by me. It's the kind of it's the kind of trailer you would see in front of like the fake trailers in Tropic Thunder. Like it's absurd. Yeah, like who who would actually make that movie starring Shia LaBeouf as his abusive father? Um, it's it's ridiculous. And one of the things is interesting here: uh, Manchester by the Sea breakout. Lucas Hedges is going to play LaBeouf outside. Uh, outside of LaBeouf playing his father, so he's going to have somebody else play him. So and, it's going to be his teenage self. Like, it's right. not his, like, kid self, which is even more bizarre. Yes, this covers uh, a popular child star, LaBeouf, who attempts to mend his relationship with his damaged father, LaBeouf, over the course of a decade. So it's over 10 years, and, and it's kind of covering that, I guess. I got to be honest, in a way, I sound intrigued, but more, like, morbidly curious than, like, genuinely interested. More like, oh, God, what a... Shia LaBeouf up to like now. I, Do you remember? Like I, I got to see this train wreck, kind of. Right. Oh, exactly. Do you remember that? Yeah, because he went on this whole thing where he was like wearing a bag on his head at photo shoots. It was like, I'm not famous anymore. And he got all weird and like clearly couldn't handle the spotlight. This just kind of seems like a, a cry for help, I guess. Like, what, <laughs> what, are, we, what are we doing here? Yeah. Uh, the movie's going to be directed by Omar Alma Harrell. Who, who directed Bombay Beach, which I have never seen or heard of. Um, I, 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 this, this is recently, this is from LaBeouf recently coming out of a period of public silence. I'm kind of just reading off the article here. He was arrested in 2017 uh, for racially charged, expletive laced disorderly conduct in Savannah, Georgia. 
Uh, clearly, LaBeouf is trying to get a little bit of uh, redemption out of this. It also kind of seems like you're pointing a finger. Yeah, my life sucks, but look at this guy. This is the reason it's so tough for me. Like, what, what, are, you, what, are, you, what are you doing? You know, like, <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Yeah, like you're, you're, you're taking the world stage to, uh, yeah, say your, da- your dad sucks and you had it tough. Like, dude, you were, on, you were on Disney Channel, okay? Like, nobody feels bad for you. Your life is not that hard. Get out of here. I feel worse for Macaulay Culkin than I do for you. <laughs> at least, yeah, at least he had to get past, like, you know, death throws and stuff. Which, by the way, have you seen what he's got going on, Macaulay Culkin? Stage play? Something no, like he, he was he was on he was on Jimmy Fallon and he's on Twitter and Instagram now. He's like he's like making a comeback. He cut his hair and he got out of the. Uh, he's he's not in a weird band anymore. He's like he's got a podcast. It's wild. No, that's that's what it was. Like I, I did, he did an AMA and it was yeah. about his podcast and yeah he talked about different things he was and wasn't doing. Yeah, he's like doing an AMA now. He cut his hair so he doesn't look that weird anymore. Anymore, I'm like man. Macaulay Culkin's coming out of the woodwork. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know, follow him on uh, on Twitter at Incredible Culk. <laughs> That's clever. <laughs> on Instagram, he's Culkamania. Yeah, it's uh, it's really something. Anyway, uh, the last story, and this isn't, I, I don't have a headline to read here. Uh, you pointed this out to me, and I didn't want to address it, but you're right, we should talk about it on the show. Uh, the movie I was very quick to dismiss last week, I can only imagine, made, what, $27.5 million this weekend? Yep. It was the third biggest release behind Black Panther, which is going into its third week now? Fifth. And fifth. <laughs> fifth week. Oh, my God. It's fifth week. And Tomb Raider, which came second. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Andy, what are your immediate thoughts about I Can Only Imagine making $27.5 million at the American box office this weekend? Well, we were both really wrong about the audience for this film. I, you know, we were, I definitely was like, well, I don't know who's going to watch this. Even if I was into Christian music, I wouldn't go watch this. But apparently there's an audience. And we, and we were saying that, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if an audience exists for these kinds of movies. Apparently we were, we were completely wrong. I don't think I was wrong. Let me, let me explain. I don't think we were wrong in saying, uh, this movie is lowbrow, desperate attempt to make a little bit of scratch off an old song. I think we were wrong in, in, in predicting how many people cared. I, I, I would agree we were wrong there, but I, I don't feel bad about say, calling this movie what it is. That being said, it has a higher Rotten score than A Wrinkle in Time did. Not that Rotten is the Bible or anything. Um, not to offend any, I can imagine, <laughs> fans. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I guess this is a case of, like, I got to eat a little crow here. Like, this movie's making money. It's it's arguably certified fresh. It is 64 right now. Like, okay. I mean, Maybe Dennis I can Qu- only imagine isn't that stupid. <laughs> Dennis Quaid is in it. Maybe he carries it. Dennis Quaid is in it. Maybe he carries it. Yeah, I hope so. It is 110 minutes. It is hardly past feature length. I would not watch it if you tied me to a chair. Um, but uh, for all I know, it could be great. If, if you've seen, I can only imagine, and you want to defend it, please email us at mail at offscript.com. We will be happy to have you on the show in some capacity to, to, to tell us how wrong we are. Really, honestly, I, I, I would appreciate somebody who's seen it who could tell me about it because I... I don't plan on seeing it but that's my piece on i can only imagine do you have anything you want to say about it andy well i mean we might start seeing more of these films oh. if they're gonna if they're gonna be this <laughs> successful god. it's like it's like your doctor giving you a bad diagnosis like oh god you're right we might have to go see a movie like i can only imagine who yeah who knows man these pure flicks people they can do anything 
They can, they can, they can, they can make anything they want. I suppose it's not too bad though. In a way, I wanted to go see like The Shack. You remember that movie? Based yeah. on the book, starring Sam Worthington. Yeah, I kind of wanted to go see that, but I didn't, and I, I, I don't think I regret that at all. Anyway, to dump out of the news and hopefully not offend anybody who probably very easily could have been offended by my spiel about a Christian film, uh, the first movie we're going to talk about is this week's new release, Tomb Raider. If you're listening to this, then I must be dead. I found something, a tomb called the Mother of Death. Tomb Raider is a movie starring Alicia Vikander, uh, the Swedish actress from most recently Ex Machina, I think, where she had a brilliant performance as a AI robot. Tomb Raider is the story of Laura Croft, the fiercely independent daughter of a missing adventurer who must push herself beyond her limits when she finds herself on an island where her father disappeared. It's very simple. That's pretty much the whole, the whole, the whole premise. I don't have much more to say about it. Andy, any immediate thoughts before we dig into the review? Okay, so when I saw the trailer, I was not very impressed, not very excited. It looked incredibly generic and boilerplate, and it not didn't really get me excited. So I went in with with you know pretty tempered expectations, um, and I got I got what I kind of expected. This movie is based on a video game. I'm a big gamer. You probably know that Tomb Raider. It's fine, but it's it's specifically it's based off the I think 2013 uh, Square Enix reboot of the series, where they tried to kind of desexualize Laura Croft a little bit, take away the very generous polygon she's known for, and and kind of bring her down to earth and make her a little bit more relatable. And to do this in the game, they made they told they told a very cinematic story of Laura Croft being shipwrecked on an island, uh, not knowing much about being an adventurer, not not having any real skills, and over the course of the game, having to kind of get herself out of this situation by kind of getting into trouble with some adverse forces and ultimately discovering that uh, she is kind of a, she's a strong character who's capable of much more than she ever thought before, and becoming the Tomb Raider, or at least the very beginning of it. This movie is based on that game, but they made some kind of artistic differences there there's there's some changes from this movie to that movie and i want to dig into the art of the video game adaptation and we should probably get to that at the end of this conversation if not a later episode but for now let's start with the plot um the game starts off there's a shipwreck you're on an island that's where the game starts the movie doesn't get to that until 45 minutes in the first 45 minutes, of the, well, first, first 40, I should be clear, I checked my watch. The first 40 minutes of this movie are set up in London, where Laura Croft is a bike courier, and she is kind of discovering, oh yeah, her, her father, who, who disappeared a long time ago, probably isn't coming back, and in the process of that, she kind of uncovers this little like treasure hunt mystery where she finds this island, and it's like, ooh, he might be there. Then they head to the island. So the first 45 minutes of this movie really splits this into two parts. There's mainland, London, culture, and there's island, savage, Tomb Raider, right? Mm -hmm. And some Hong Kong thrown in there. A little bit of Hong Kong thrown in there just to kind of bridge that gap. Yeah, to not not make it too too wacky for you. Uh, What did you think about the first 40 minutes of this movie? Uh, it was kind of a big snooze fest, and it was all full of of cliches. You know, she's like, "Oh, I'm a, I'm 
the heiress to the the Croft fortune, but I don't want it because my dad might be alive, even though he's been gone for seven years. And you know, I'm an MMA fighter and a bike courier, and I'm a genius and kind of a little kind of too good to be believable, right? And and that was something, yeah. I felt like obviously it wouldn't work in a video game format, but like leaving that out in the game was smart. Because you leave us uh, as the audience to figure it out as we go through this much more intriguing adventure. Putting her in London at the beginning of this movie and then having us kind of handheld through exposition and backstory till we get to the island, it's boring. It's ex- Yeah, it's exactly what it was. It was a snooze fest. It reminded me a little bit of Batman because in Batman, specifically Batman Begins, or really any iteration of, Bruce Wayne's parents die... And then you've got this kind of lost character who becomes Batman. But you could argue Bruce Wayne kind of died in the alley, too. What came out of that alley was not Bruce Wayne. It was a, ty- it was a totally different being. This one isn't that way. She's, she's Laura Croft through and through. She doesn't really become the Tomb Raider until, like, the end. And even then, she's not really Tomb Raider. Like, so, so you're missing something there. You're missing, like, a level of... I called it stakes... But a level of care, really, like the, the stakes aren't high enough. I don't care enough about Laura Croft. Yeah, she's just this cliched, I have it all Londonite who refuses to accept that she is a millionaire and has this like <laughs> chip on her shoulder because yeah. we're told she has a chip on her shoulder, which is kind of a bummer. But you do get a cool kind of like chase scene on this on this bike courier bit that is completely unnecessary and frankly ham-fisted. But it was kind of cool for what it's worth. It was an action scene. I was like, okay, mm-hmm. this... This isn't so bad, but yeah, it's it was like a really good set piece in the wrong movie. Exactly, and and then we get the transition to Hong Kong, which I don't want to say is forgettable, but almost wholly unnecessary. But you do get kind of a cool a cool action set piece in there too. Um, you also get uh, Daniel Wu as the boat captain, who is arguably underutilized. I think yeah, I actually really very, liked his character. Yeah, very. and I wanted to see more of him. Um, and to dig into performance for a minute, Alicia Vikander, I thought was, I don't want to say underused. She was arguably overused. Like they beat the hell out of her in this movie. She has a <laughs> lot of action. She does. Yeah. Um, but I, I just, she lacked some kind of like something in her, in her character and her performance. I, I don't know. I don't know what, 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 what did you think? I mean, it seemed like, she, yeah, there's no real discerning personality. Other yeah, than maybe she's that's just, it. Yeah. Other than she's just like the can-do-it-all action star. I definitely liked it. I liked the second half a lot better than the first half. Like, once they get to Tomb Raiding, I'm fine. It, but, it, like, all the, the lead-up to that is just, it's poor, cliched writing. When we when we get to the island and we meet the bad guy played by Walton Goggins, uh, who's phenomenal in um, lots of Quentin Tarantino roles, actually. Sure. Um, but he's just like evil McEvilson. Who's yeah. The bad he's guy. He's kind of bland. Yeah. And, and, and this, this kind of thing where he has like, you know, slave laborers and one of them gets sick and so he shoots them. It's this, just so you know he was evil, um, even though he's trying to get back home to his daughters as, as well. It's this, it's this weird juxtaposition. And frankly, lots of kind of casual murder <laughs> happens in this movie too. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't, when you get to the when you get to the island, things pick up. Certainly, it's like okay, now this is starting to get interesting. The stakes have been raised. We are well into our second act at this point. 
Um, but the writing doesn't exactly get better. I felt like anytime Laura Croft came across like an obstacle, whether it be like raging rapids she's in or yeah, like mercenaries with guns that she has to deal with, it just felt like a set piece. All right, well now we have to do this because it's in, it's in the Tomb Raider games and we have to do it because that's, and I get it, like it's based on a game. But at the same time, like, you should make it feel like a natural evolution of story. You shouldn't have it in there because it's a staple and you kind of have to have it. Like, it should feel like this character naturally arrives at this situation and has to figure out how to get out of it in a way that fits the character. Not, well, this was kind of in the game. We're just going to jam it in here and move on. And, and I don't, did you play the game? No. Okay, perfect. Then you're a perfect person to talk about this because I did and you didn't. Did it feel that way to you or did it feel like, no, everything that's happening is a natural evolution of like, w- yeah, that makes sense. That that would happen based on where we're at. No, there were definitely several times that you, like the set with when she's in the rapids and also escaping the plane and the shipwreck. It, it just it all feels like a different video game level. Yeah, there, there's a great bit in there uh, when she is. I don't want to I don't want to be particularly spoilery. This in a spoiler cast, but. Uh, she's she's having to overcome a difficult obstacle after a series of difficult obstacles. And when she realizes things aren't about to go her way, she not breaks the fourth wall, but in a way, she's alone. All right? She has nobody else to talk to besides the audience here. She, she looks at this thing that's about to go down and goes, really? Like, exasperated. But I mean, and it just felt so, like, <laughs> so appropriate. Yeah, it's just because the stuff is just being thrown at us like without any real care or quality assurance it's just one 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 action set piece after another the point where even the character is exhausted like really another one of these yeah like just not enough room to breathe and when you do get the room to breathe things don't have the right weight because it just feels kind of rushed and ham-fisted then to, to follow this, once we actually get to the rating of the tomb, this one, uh, just like the really line, I thought was really apt. Um, she has to fo- solve some kind of like series of puzzles in order to open the door to this tomb. They don't even tell you how she does it. They don't even try to like help walk you, the audience member, through it and like help you figure it out. She just starts messing with these big locks on this door and then it just opens. It's like, ooh, she did it. I'm like, how did she solve a like two thousand year old puzzle? She's a puzzler. She's a puzzler, you know. Exactly. <laughs> she she can solve those puzzles. Like that's 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 what she can do. Like at some point they almost give up. And then there's a sequence. Yeah, no, no, I, I don't want to get too far into it. Well, once you once you start to get into the tomb, that's where you really get the Tomb Raider staples. There is a, there's like a, you know, I've been talking too much. Do you want to do you want to take this? Well, like I, I was gonna say, yeah. When you get into the tomb, it becomes a little bit more Indiana Jane, and <laughs> and the, the Temple of Ripoffs uh, because. <laughs> Because, you know, there's some puzzles and some traps, and they're very similar to things we've seen in Indiana Jones. Um, so some of the things that really stick out and really took me out of it are, you know, when we're in London, like, those scenes are cool. When we're in Hong Kong, we're on location, you know, some cool some cool scenes there. But then, like, the island stuff just looks like you're on the back lot. The shipwreck... It really like, does, yeah. The shipwreck is, in, is, like, all CGI. The The part where she's like in the rapids and on the plane is all cgi like it if they had done that like real deal i think i would have bought it a little bit more it reminded me of um 
So in Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, like the, they shot on location in like Costa Rica or some tropical place that looked like the real deal. And that's definitely not what they did in this movie. And it def- it definitely took me out of it. Right. Establishing setting is something they struggle with. I noticed this in London because you get a couple shots of like Laura's apartment, but like you don't really get a sense of where it is. In fact, arguably, other than the accents, I wouldn't have even known that was London. You could have said it was Atlanta or New York and I would have gone with it. Like I didn't, it didn't have a sense of identity. Hong Kong was the same way. They're out in like the shipyard but other, yeah, other than that, like, there's there's no real establishment uh, that this is Hong Kong. You just kind of have to figure it out. And then the island was the worst. Where are, like, the sweeping drone shots? Like, Jurassic Park, you know you're on an island. There's eight shots of them on an island. There's a boat outside looking at the island. There's a helicopter flying around the island. This had, like, four stock images of, like, <laughs> some mountains. And you're like, yeah, I guess that's an island. Like, you don't really get a sense of place and it really does feel like a lot of the shots when she's out in the woods it's like you look like you filmed this on the back lot you look like you filmed this out back behind the studio it's like yeah we'll just we'll shoot it back there it'll be fine it'll be cheap it'll be on a budget um it's kind of lazy and then when you get in the tomb it just feels like yeah a series of sets like you kind of you're, you're missing something and, and a handful of cgi and it really doesn't help the experience and and one of the things that i struggled with in the tomb yeah is is like the traps and the Tomb Raider staples, they were like a spike trap or a rolling spike trap. They're brief, they happen, and then they go away and don't even come back. In fact, one of them, uh, I, I, it had no reason to be in the movie. There, there was no setting for it. It's used briefly as a plot device, but like it's, a, it's a, specifically, it's a trap in a hallway. The hallway doesn't go anywhere. They make it halfway down the hallway. They figure out, wow, it's a crazy trap, and then they double back. Why? Why was that there? <laughs> Where was that going? What was that there for? Who set that up? How long has that, that been there? Yeah, like, I was just watching it like, what is this? Like, why? Why? And, like, it really does feel like the only reason these things are in the movie is because they kind of have to be and not because they should be. And, like, you you, you lose something there. The writing is ham-fisted. Yeah, it's just kind of clumsy. And it's a shame coming off a game that was so effective at telling its story through a cinematic lens when you actually take that and transfer it to the screen, it doesn't quite work. And, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Yeah. I, I, th- like I said, once it gets going, I mean, it has to really get going in basically when they're into the tomb, I, I liked it a lot more. And I, once the characters are established and we know this is the good guy, this, this is who this person is, this is who that person is. Um, this is a good guy. This is a bad guy. Then it, it feels a little bit more natural. And I would almost, like to see what a second movie would do once we've established these characters and not yeah. have to kind of do a elaborate backstories and who see who the, who they are. I, I would as well. Um, short of the incredibly grown worthy final shot in this movie. I, I was like, Oh God, that's like, in the trailer. The, the final the shot. Sequel, it's in the trailer. Yeah. So I don't, that I, is unbelievable. I don't want to talk about it too much, but if you've seen the trailer, you can probably guess what the final shot is. There's no post credit scene. I stuck around because I figured there would be. I was like, there will probably be some I stupid. Did did... <laughs> I just, it seemed like it was on that level. And not to say it's the quality of a Marvel film, not what I mean. I mean, it seemed like the kind of like crass filmmaking that would have something like that. Like, ooh, we'll have a post credit shot because that's popular. People like those. Um, it was just kind of lazy. And, and, and something else I noticed, and, and I don't. 
I know I shouldn't be comparing it too much to the game it's directly based off of, but it's a game it's directly based off of. Like we, it's, <laughs> I think it's fair to compare Annihilation a little bit to the book it's written off of. So real quick, the, I, I don't want to say too much that, well, it should have been this way because in the game it was like that and it's better. I get it. Like the book will always be better than the movie. Arguably the video game will always be better than the movie. But like to be fair, in the game, the stakes are higher. They are. In the game, the first time you take control of your character, Laura Croft is upside down, right? Strung up from a ceiling, next to a bunch of corpses, about to be eaten by a cannibal. And the first action you take causes her to fall and get speared in the side by a piece of rebar. It's bad. Really bad. <laughs> Things are not good. All right. She cries a lot in that game because she is a scared young woman who's probably going to die on a godforsaken island. When she gets captured by mercenaries in the game, it is heavily implied nothing good is going to happen to a young woman on an island around a bunch of dudes who haven't seen a woman in years. Like, pretty much told to you, nothing good is going to happen. And Laura Croft escapes, and that provides her motivation to kind of deal with these adversaries in the way that she does, which is homicidal. In this movie, like, not only do you not get the cannibal, you don't get the corpses, uh, you don't get the implied rape. Like, that doesn't happen. Uh, sorry, I, I was trying to avoid saying it, but I, I wanted to be clear what I'm talking about. Um, I mean, for God's sake, in the yeah, game... She just, she just starts murdering people. Yeah. they like It kills me. She gets captured by these huge strapping dudes who were told a number of times have not seen a woman in seven years. And she's like a 22-year-old girl from London who looks like Alicia Vikander. And they just put her to work alongside all the other sailors they've captured. I'm like, what are you doing? Are you kidding? Like, they wouldn't put you to work. They'd mess you up. And that's twisted of me to think, but, like, it's true. Like, I, I the game knew that. They were self-aware enough to understand, like, hey, nothing good's going to happen. And instead, they had to take all that goodness, all that storytelling, all of that explanation of a character's sexuality and and tamp it down for a PG-13 audience. And it, you just lose something. Like, it's just, it's not quite there. And it's it's such a bummer because they could have done so much more with this and they just <laughs> kind of missed the mark. Yeah. I yeah, think no, they agreed. They really did. It is, just like it's deceptively easy to make a, a cinematic universe, it's deceptively easy to make a blockbuster action popcorn flick. It is. It seems easy. Well, Michael Bay can do it. Can't anybody? No. The answer is they can't. Because you have to take something that's kind of mm, surface, I guess, and, and make it and, and make it something that everybody can watch and enjoy. You have to grab our attention and you have to hold it with something that normally isn't all that attention grabbing. Tomb Raider had the opportunity and it totally missed. It totally missed. Um so that's Tomb Raider, I guess. Any any thoughts before recommendations? <laughs> the last thing that I remembered, uh, she kind of turns into Legolas at one point where she's bow and, er- <laughs> bow and arrowing a lot of people. Uh-huh. And, and there is an absolutely ridiculous scene where she points her bow and arrow at someone who's in a in a helicopter. Yeah. And so so they're behind glass, you know, it's like how are you threatening this person right. with their behind glass? Right, and the bow and arrow is only in there. Because it was in the game, like naturally, like, why would she need a bow, a bow and arrow? Like, I the place she gets it from in the movie, I suppose, makes sense. 
but for what it's worth, yeah, it's like, wouldn't she rather have a firearm, a gun? Like, why would she go for a bow and arrow? Also, yeah, the ice pick from the game is in this. There's no ice on this island. There's there's yeah. no snow. In the island in the game, there's snow. It makes sense you would find an ice pick in this. Like, why would that be there? And it's in, it's in the tomb, for God's sake. I'm like, what, somebody bring that in? Like, what do you do? What, I don't know. Um... Yeah, it's just like they they had to have stuff in there because oh well, it was in the game we've got to have it and like it just it just feels hamfisted. So, uh, Andy, would you recommend Tomb Raider? No, probably not. I <laughs> I'm very torn about this. Maybe that's my recommendation. If Netflix. You, yep. If it, exactly. If it's on Netflix and you have nothing better to watch and you heard this review and are still curious, go for it. Tell me I'm wrong. Email us. Let me let me know. I, I we don't know what we're talking about. But like, it, it is a it is a boilerplate popcorn action flick that deserves exactly what its Rotten Tomatoes score is, which as of currently is a 49. I would put it on par with something like Doom, based on the video game. Like it's just it's just kind of dull. Um, somebody said it was like watching a loading screen for two hours. I wouldn't say it's that dull. It it just like, ugh, this leaves a bad taste in my mouth. But that's Tomb Raider. That's Tomb Raider, and and to kind of carry on with at least video game adaptations, I never understand the need that they're like, oh, this is in the game, it's got to be in the movie. Like, no, like no. you you're not. No, you don't have to. It's not like comic books or Star Wars where it's like, oh, we got to do this for the fans. Like, <sighs> like the fans are gonna care that she has the bow and arrow. Right. Or, like, and or it the ice pick. It doesn't need to be like the Super Mario Brothers movie where it's like a total reinterpretation. But I think when you make a movie based on a previous property that leaves things up to user interpretation, namely a book or a video game, you have to understand that. You have to understand that the experience an audience member has with the book or the video game is going to be more intimate, more sincere, and frankly better than whatever you can come up with. You got to know that going in. You can't just try to do the video game in movie form and expect it to work. Like, it's not going to happen. It's failed before and it will continue to fail until, until directors figure that out and have some way to work around it. I don't know how. I'm not a director, so I realize it's probably not good of me to just offer critique like that. But I've played a lot of video games. And I've seen a lot of video game movies. I've seen a lot of good movies that aren't based on video games. And I, think there's a, I think there's a happy marriage there. I think it's just really fairly difficult, really difficult to find, to be fair. Yeah. I think you're going to need a writer slash director who has played a lot of video games and can say like, no, we don't need to actually put gameplay into the film. Yeah, we need, we, to, we need to tell the story. Like from yeah, the all, game. that cool that cool action scene from the from the video game. We have to put that on the movie. No, you don't. You don't. You really don't. You could leave that in the video game. You could leave that like for people who played it to enjoy. You could make this something that kind of acts as a supplement towards or even an addition to the video game. Like you don't have to have it replace the video game. Well, if you didn't play the game, look, you can watch or do it here. Now it doesn't have the same weight. It doesn't matter as much. Um, I don't know. That's, that's Tomb Raider. <laughs> Moving on. I spent way too long talking about Tomb Raider. My God, yes. Moving on to... Uh, do you want to say it? This is time for our uh, Death of Cinema. The Death of Cinema. That's right. Uh, this week on The Death of Cinema was something I wanted to talk about. So I appreciate you putting this in the notes. I wasn't sure if you you really wanted to take this one. Uh, do, do you mind if I explain? Go go ahead. All right, here's what it is. 
So we watched Logan this week, which we will talk about in a minute. Um, and leading into the Logan, you were telling me that there's a version of Logan you can get called Logan Noir, which is what exactly? It's the film in black and white. Right. Uh, it's Logan in black and white. And watching Logan halfway through, I couldn't help but think, man, that would probably be a really cool experience. Like this movie in black and white would be cool. Like I, I would be into that. I would want to watch that. It's not because, uh, okay, arguably it is because I, I really like movies and like artistic interpretation, but like, no, I really do think it would be cool. And it reminds me of Mad Max Fury Road, which had the black and chrome edition, also in black and white. Um, both of these were put out by the directors. They were like, I think this would be cool in black and white. It was cool. I don't know if one was necessarily inspired by the other, but I think it's a clever idea. It's a really cool way to add a dimension to a movie that a lot of audience members may not be able to understand because I really do think you can get you can get something out of black and white that you can't get in color. I, I really do. There, there's something to it. Maybe it's just old movies I like. But this reminded me as well of The Last Jedi because uh, Ryan Johnson got on Twitter and said, hey, good news. Uh, alongside The Last Jedi Blu-ray, if you go to this website the Disney setup, right? And you and you give them your email and sign up for this thing or whatever, which is free. It doesn't cost anything. You get uh, a version of The Last Jedi that is just the soundtrack with all, all vocal performances excluded, right? That's the deal? I think so, yeah. Okay. I also think that's cool. Similar to the black and white versions, like I really do think that's intriguing. That's something I would want to watch as a fan of the film. Like I'd be interested to see what that looks like. And this is something he said, this is something I really wanted to put on the Blu-ray. It's so cool that Disney's letting me put it out. All you got to do is sign up for this thing and then you're on your way. In order to get Mad Max Black and Chrome Edition, George Miller wanted to put it on the Blu-ray. As far as I know, the studio didn't let him. They put it out six months later on another release, and you can either buy it there or you can rent it specifically for like $9.99. Specifically rent the black and white version. Uh, which Logan, I have done. Right, which I probably should do, or I can just turn down the saturation on my TV and be a sap. Logan, uh, Logan Noir, I think is the same way, right? Yeah, you can rent it. Right, you can rent it, or you can buy the Blu-ray with it, but like the original Blu-ray didn't have it. It is it is an additional feature at cost. Return of the or, or the Last Jedi doesn't cost you any money, but it costs you information. You got to get on a mailing list or something. You, the consumer, have to jump through an extra hoop to get to this version of the film. So here is my proposal: Why are these versions of movies, these additional versions, considered additional products? and not simply something to be relegated to the special features menu. Why can't I go to the Blu-ray that I buy day one or any Blu-ray released with this on it and go to special features and turn it on and watch the movie that way? Why do I have to jump through an extra hoop? Why do I have to pay extra money? Are these versions of movies legitimately separate, valid, at-cost versions of these films, or should they just be something that's in the special features menu? Um, that is the question. Andy, what do you think? I mean, it could really be both. It, I think from a business perspective, it's like, hey, we have another product and we'll dress it up like this and we'll sell it for equal price. I mean, but I think at the same time, they could equally just put it on the, on the Blu-ray and say, hey, here's this alternate version. I mean, similar to how they used to have director commentary. You know, that was 
a version with a completely different sound or di- different backing audio. Like mm-hmm. it, it all depends on how much work it is to do. I don't know how much work it is to turn something into black and white. Um, but I think it has more to do with business, if anything. Right. I, I couldn't agree more, especially in the case of The Last Jedi, which I guess is good. They're not charging for it. I, I think of director commentary. I think of that doesn't cost extra. I don't have to pay extra for that. Okay, that is a version of the film that is different from the original, but distributed by the director, the auteur who produced the film um, alongside it as a supplementary material, not an additional. I don't have to pay extra cost for that. I'm disappointed I have to pay extra for Mad Max Black and Chrome Edition because I would watch it. I'm disappointed I have to pay extra for Logan Noir because I would watch it if I could. They aren't available on streaming services. Even then, there might be less of an argument here, but they're not. You have to seek it out. You have to buy it. Like, you have to. As far as I know, The Last Jedi is going to be the same way, aside from this service that you have to go... I don't even really know what you have to do for it, but it's disappointing. Because on the And I'm torn because on the one hand... I, I think it's stupid. I have to pay extra. Come on, th- throw that in. Like, that should be a feature for, for fans, all right? Just like the director commentary, for people who really care, for people who really want to see more, that should be something you can get because you're committed and you bought the film, you didn't pirate it, you did the world a solid, all right? You paid your dues. Uh, <laughs> you should get it. On the other hand, if I'm willing to devote a segment on a podcast to talking about it, clearly I value these things, right? Clearly I value them. And why wouldn't I be willing to pay for something I value? What what about this? What if they, you know, if they have the special edition that has the black and white versions, what if it was just, you know, you you have to pay a little bit extra for this, like, special edition DVD that comes with the black and as opposed to paying, because you essentially have to pay full price. Sure. Okay, so so kind of like buying, uh, I think now it's they're pretty much all standard, but it used to be you could buy a version of a movie that was just the DVD, or you could buy the DVD and the online code, and the online code was like $4 extra or something, right? It gives yeah. you another version of the movie, it's just a little extra, but if you want it, you can pay it. That's not bad, but that still leaves me in a weird spot with something like Mad Max Fury Road, Black and Chrome, because they didn't release the Black and Chrome version until like six months after the Blu-ray had already been out. Everybody who wanted the movie already bought it. Right, like, exactly. All you're doing is leaving the people who wanted it out in the cold because now they got to go buy it again. Like, how does that? How's that good? And yeah, I can rent it online, but like for ten dollars? Come on! I already bought the movie. I'm much more tempted to just turn down the saturation on my TV and watch it in black <laughs> and white. And I know that's not the way it's intended to be watched. In fact, I would be handicapping my experience by doing that. <laughs> I think. Um, but like. Yeah, who who who's really benefiting from this? Is it the studios making money? Is the director, or is it the people who actually care enough to pay for it? I mean, that's the reason I didn't buy the black and chrome edition is because I had already bought uh, Fury Road, right? And I wasn't about to buy it again. That's the reason I still haven't watched it because I already have Fury Road. I'm not about yeah. to buy it again. Yeah, I did um, rent it. I did rent it though, and I did. I, enjoy I it. probably should rent it though. Yeah, for for what it's worth, Logan as well. Um, I actually really would like to see the black and white version of this. So if you have any thoughts on this, please email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Leave us a rating on iTunes and tell us what you think in there. I don't care. Tweet at us. Uh, <laughs> it's fine. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think this is something, yeah, based on these three movies that I'm talking about, I think this is a conversation that will come into play again at some point. There, there will be another movie that does something like this, and, and I'll be interested to see um, what that means, I guess. Be weird if yeah. something like see it's, it seems like something like Guillermo del Toro would do right like a black and white version of his cool new movie Shape of Water or something like I I um 
it's 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 a very auteur thing, and and I I, I respect it. I I, just, I don't want to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> and see i i really like these alternate versions you know it reminds me a lot of uh in music and as a musician you know there's a lot of ways to interpret uh you know a symphony or a solo piece you know you can use different instrumentation or mm-hmm. set up the ensemble differently you can create a different experience based on performance choices and so yeah so I, that, that does get me really excited when i can do that cinematically right um, it's i don't know <laughs> I agree. Like, I really do. Like, I, I, I respect it. I respect the vision. I think it's awesome they're making stuff like this and that this is even getting a release. Like, that's very cool. Um, I just don't want to pay more for it. I don't think I should have to. I don't. Like, I, I, I think that should be included. Uh, but I I don't know. It is what it is, I guess. Uh, what am I going to do? You know, this is, this is one of those things I think studios see it as like an easy cash grab. Like, ooh, we can make a little bit more money. Perfect. Yeah, that charge for it. Um, it's a shame. I, I think it's it's... I don't want to say it's disrespectful to the art tour, <laughs> right? Like, really, though, like, James Mangold put out his movie, all right? He made Logan. He, it looked the way he wanted it to. Like, him throwing a second version in black and white and expecting them to put out for free, like, that, that's not an expectation. They don't have to do that. Um, so it's not that crazy for him to charge extra. It just it bums me out is all, I guess. Yeah. I, don't, I, I really don't have much more to say about it. I feel like I'm talking in circles. So we should probably move on to our next movie. Andy, it is an honor to announce this. Please. <laughs> Uh, take it away. And our next film is Logan. Logan, what did you do? Charles, the world is not the same as it was. Um, which is the 2016 Wolverine film. I'm I'm uh, hoping the clip I use is just enough where we don't get flagged for copyright. So, <laughs> but anyway, we'll move on. Yeah, go it's ahead. in your it's in your hands. That's right. Um. And so this is a very different version of the X-Men franchise than we've ever seen. This is up there, for me, this is up there with uh, The Dark Knight as far as really in-depth comic book uh, films. Um, and so what we get is a very hard rated R film. And we find uh, Logan, the Wolverine, um, he's old, he is haggard, he's a limo driver, um, he's is abusing alcohol and he's just, man, he's a wreck. He has PTSD, um, fits of rage, and he's looking after a very old, uh, professor X who is in his nineties and is kind of having his brain fail. And because of that, he's loses control of his powers and that puts everyone in danger. So they're living a very bleak existence South of the border. Um, Logan has to buy, you know, drugs off the, not drugs, but medications off the black market so he can give uh, to the professor. And they're just kind of surviving until who knows, who knows what, there's not really a lot going on um, until one day they meet this young girl named Laura, who they find out is an experimentation of mutants. There are very, almost no other mutants, which is another kind of different thing. Um, we hear one line that says, you know, there hasn't been a new mutant born in 25 years. So they're a very kind of dying breed, literally. Um, anyways, when once they meet Laura, they have to kind of get her south of the border. That's what they, that's what they're paid to do. Or a woman gives Logan a ton of money, says, we just have to get her safe. There's a place south, not south, sorry, north in Canada um, where she'll be safe. 
And so that's that's the main setup. And it's a, this movie's just really incredible. Like it's a deep character study of Logan of Wolverine, unlike we've ever gotten before. I mean, he's he's a damaged person. He's had this lifetime of violence, and it's it's finally starting to kind of unravel him. And there's lots of other incredible aspects. I mean, it's almost like it almost gets into like there's too much in the movie, but but not really because you have this family drama between Logan and the elderly professor and the new daughter. So he kind of has to play father to both. Um, You know, there's this whole thing with the genetic experiments and it's just, man, it's something else. And it's something unlike we've ever seen before from Marvel. Right. To, to counter off of our uh, Tomb Raider discussion, whereas Tomb Raider was like a series of what felt like mandatory set pieces, Logan is like this incredible dance through genre and storytelling, like to get across a number of thematic storylines in one like very well organized swoop. Um, Logan, uh, of course, of course, Hugh Jackman's Logan, uh, the character, uh, he is a it's exactly what you said. He has damaged goods and not only because he's old and like his, you know, mutants are pretty much not around anymore and his healing powers are starting to wear off. But because he has seen a lifetime of nothing but like gruesome murder his whole life that he's tried to run away from by drinking and, and smoking cigars and, and joining the X-Men and doing more murder. And like clearly it didn't get him anywhere it kind of reminded me of and there's a theme of a western in here with the movie shane that's not too heavy-handed it reminded me less of shane and more of like the coen brothers version of true grit like clearly a lifetime of this doesn't get you anywhere good and in this movie he's he's paying for that he's paying for everything through this odd story of kind of redemption in helping this girl to kind of meet her destiny um, and also hopefully find his. Yeah, redemption is one of the the strong themes. We meet another mutant named uh, Caliban who is also kind of seeking redemption as well. And even uh, Professor X who uh, this is really kind of heartbreaking because he is starting to forget. I mean, he kind of has Alzheimer's or it's hinted at um, and there's, it's hinted that he lost control and essentially killed the rest of the X-Men, um, which is, and the thing is he can't remember it half the time. Like everyone else knows this happened, but he, you know, the memory fades in and out and he doesn't understand why everyone has to, or everyone's trying to keep him sedated or keep, keeps feeding him medication. Um, so he's kind of seeking redemption as well. And he's still, you know, the ever the ever-present father figure and teacher. He's still trying to teach Logan. He's still trying to guide him. Right, and, th- and it's what you said. That's what makes, or part of what makes this story so heartbreaking is just like Logan is a shell of his former self, like, this is a shell of an X-Men movie. There are n- almost no mutants in it. All of the familiar faces, all of the ones you've come to know and love, that that awesome kind of flash-forward back scene at the end of X-Men Days of Future Past, that's all gone. All of it's gone. Like, you don't get any of that comfort. You don't get any of that warmth. You don't get any of that familiarity. You just get these old, tired versions of these characters you love that are clearly at the end of the road and they haven't gotten there in a good fashion. 
like the way you would want them to as an audience. And so you end up in this weird kind of stunted position where you feel sorry for them, but because of the journey they've taken and because you've been a part of that, watching the movies, reading the comics, you understand it. You get why they're there. And one of the ways James Mangold kind of tells that brilliant analogy is through keeping, and I thought this was brilliant. I don't have enough good things to say about it. Keeping the X-Men alive in the universe of Logan. The X-Men comics are real things. They're, they, he carries them around. At one point, he comments about how most of it's made up. A lot of it didn't happen. The stuff that did didn't happen like that. This is all, what do he say? Ice, ice cream for bedwetters is what he yeah. says. Is <laughs> yeah. A goofy line. But it's true. Like, you you look at the X-Men movies as we've seen them. You look at the comics and you think, wow, these are, you know, these are fantastical versions of people running around in tights and doing incredible things and saving the world. And this movie absolutely spits in the face of that and says, no, this is, it is the most human representation of, of a mutant film I think I've ever seen. I, it remi- I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of Unforgiven, mm-hmm. actually, where you have the the myth of the gunslinger, the, the myth of the gunfighter, and then the reality of, of the man. And it, it reminded me a lot of The Last Jedi as well, like the the myth of Luke Skywalker versus the actual person, the actual, the actual man, and the struggle there, and kind of the fall from this legendary status. I think... We should probably address uh, the R rating, right? We should talk about that. Uh, yeah. This movie is rated R, hard R, not not PG-13, R. Um, and I didn't really appreciate this because I hadn't seen it up till this week. This is the first time I had seen it. You saw it when it came out. I didn't appreciate this till you told me last week. Like, in making an R movie like this, there's a lot more to consider than just like, well, pleasing the fans. They can't make toys off this. They can't make merchandise off a comic book movie if it's rated R. They can't market this to kids. They have to market it to adults, and it's a very different movie for it. Yeah, and so much more mature. I mean, you, you can't have, like, Alzheimer's-ridden Professor X, and you can't have hard-drinking Logan the Wolverine. Um, but it allows you to explore more adult themes. You know, I was actually invi- in, uh, kind of reminded of the situation of like, you know, we got to take the way, taking away the keys from grandpa because he's dangerous behind the wheel. That's essentially what's happening to to uh, Professor X. Is like we, he's losing his mind. People can are in danger of, of dying because he loses control of his powers and we got to do something about it. And he doesn't like it and he fights us the whole way, but it is what it is. Right. And, and you can't, you, I don't think you could have shown like the weariness in Wolverine's character in, in a PG 13 setting. You couldn't have shown what a lifetime of straight up murder does to somebody, like how it jades them and and that kind of PTSD you get from it. A fine example, look at like the PTSD, uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, Tony Stark experiences in Iron Man three, versus Hugh Jackman and Logan. I mean, it is stark. And one of them, frankly, just feels more real for it, which is Logan. Um, you know, in, in, in Iron Man 3, well, at the end of The Avengers, the first one, Tony Stark uh, closes a portal to space and sees a big spaceship. PTSD. This is like lifetime of straight murdering people, which they do not shy away from in this movie. He puts claws through people's faces. It's insane. Like, and Wolverine is just so numb to it when he does it. He doesn't even want to kill people. Like, at the very beginning of the movie, it's it's like, no, I, I don't I don't want to fight. Like, he, he doesn't. He's over it. 
but that being said, when he gets in a fight, not only does he know exactly where to stab people to kill them the fastest, um, he's incredibly efficient at it. Just does not slow him down at all, despite his age. Mm-hmm. And th- that also reminds me of, uh, so the young girl, Laura, uh, played by Daphne King, um, she's kind of a Wolverine herself. She has claws. She has cool foot claws and she's been raised to be an assassin and she does a ton of killing herself. Right. And it's, 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 she's a great foil for, for his character. Yeah. And there's a great line where, you know, she says, I have nightmares because people hurt me. And he says, I have nightmares because I hurt people because I've hurt people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, <clears throat> and she's like, what? And she realizes that she's done a lot of that same thing and will probably kind of go down that path. And he says, you're going to have to learn how to deal with that, how to live with that, you know? And it's not, it's not like, oh no, you're going to be completely different. Your life is going to not be like mine. It's no, like, no, we're going to go down very similar paths. I think it's to, to kind of shift off of, um, the conversation of, of the contents of the film and move towards, uh, its impact on the genre, if that's okay with you. I don't know if there's anything else you really want to say about it, but um, I, I don't know. In the same way that, that Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy is a love letter to Batman, I don't, I don't know if any comic book property can have a footnote as great as this. I don't even know if X-Men deserves it. Like... <laughs> Seriously, I I remember people saying this is the best X-Men movie and I was like, how is that possible? There's like seven of them. How is this the best one? I really do think it is. It's like it honestly, it it might be better than X-Men deserves. Like Hugh Jackman played Wolverine for 17 years. Nobody could have delivered a performance like this at the end of a run like that to produce an epilogue for a character um, that is so much better so much better than it deserves. I remember like early 2000s X-Men and it was like, yeah, this is cool. Leather suits. Why not? Yeah. And like, you look at this now and it's like, Oh my God, it is, it is a world of difference in, in quality and performance and character. I, I, I can't say enough about it. Yeah. We've just come so far. And I remember watching a video analysis about kind of the cycle of genre films where you start with, and this happened with the Western where you have the, just kind of the tent pole film. You eventually move on to something like parody, which would be like Deadpool. And then you get kind of get into the realm of kind of undermining the myth or, or being just more serious. And that's where we are now with a lot of the Marvel stuff where we can start really exploring some of these more, adult topics in comic book films. Right. And I think it's important for anybody who hasn't heard our conversation about it before. I think we had it on air. And if not, we definitely had it off air. The superhero film is the evolution of the Western. It is. The Western is, um, the, 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 the town is under, is under attack by the, by the local bandit and, and a stranger rides in from out of town and saves the day and then takes off at the end. That's superhero movies. All right. The earth is under attack. We need somebody to save us. This hero shows up from a distant land and 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 does it, and then they're they're off to the next adventure. It's a superhero movie and a western, like that's how it works. And this movie um, beautifully addresses that in that it doesn't look necessarily at that set piece. It looks at the end of it. That's why they 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 reference the conclusion to Shane. It looks at what happens at the end of that to the to to the hero. What happens at the end, right? Like when when the day is saved and everybody's okay. What happens to them? Um, and it's such a it's such a fantastic story. 
it's told so well and i i love it it's really good yeah yeah. I know. Then, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm at a loss for words here. <laughs> That's a, a, yeah. The last thing I'll, I'll mention is that it's like you said, it's a good kind of goodbye to Hugh Jackman and Wolverine and also leaves door open for a new generation because we've kind of reached that point where we, yeah, some of these people have been playing these characters for a long time and it's time to see new people and new characters and comic books have already done that. Like they've already moved on into other versions of, of the X-Men and uh, that sort of thing. So it, it's exciting to kind of see that on the screen. Yeah. And and you're right. That's a big part of it. I, I know 20th century um, now, I guess kind of Disney, but you know, they're, they're looking to kind of revamp X-Men and kind of change what it is. I know they've got like Marvel's runaways, which is kind of mutant X-Men E on Hulu, they're working on New Mutants. Things are moving in a different direction. And like this movie not only acknowledges that, but helps us to accept it by viewing it through the lens of the, the tentpole, the, 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 the person, the character who has carried us this far, Wolverine. Um, and it's fantastic. Yeah, it, it couldn't have been done better, I don't think. Um, it's really well put together. Yeah, it is a love letter to X-Men. It is a love letter to the fans. Um, it's acknowledgement of, of how far we've come, and it's it's a hopeful look at what's to come next. And and so fitting for the being the last X-Men movie to truly come out of 20th Century Fox before they were picked up by Disney, and, and now will arguably move in a different direction from here. Um, really, really fantastic. I... I, I it's not every day a movie like this gets made, and I don't know what executives signed off to let James Mangle make an R-rated conclusion to X-Men, um, but I, I could not thank them enough for it. So, Andy, would you recommend Logan? Absolutely. I would as well. If you, um, like me, are hesitant to watch it because eh, it's another X-Men flick or I don't really want to see the X-Men die and move into a new thing, like, don't. That is a stupid reason not to watch this movie. It is so great. Um, yeah, so that's that's Logan, I guess. Any, any, any final thoughts? Uh, last thing I'll say is that I'm ac- actually listening to... Uh, Wolverine podcast. This isn't a podcast about Wolverine. This is an actual like scripted radio play style called uh, The Long Night, um, which you can find on Stitcher. It's really good. I've listened to the first two episodes. It's funny. Yeah. The way this movie made me nostalgic for X-Men movies is, is is, a comic book movie hasn't done it yet. It hasn't, it hasn't made me want to watch things I've already seen and go back and re-examine old material in a new way like this does it's really great yeah and i, I got to the end all i want to do is go back and watch the first x-men movie and like watch it with hugh jackman when he's young and like doing a new thing you know <laughs> like it really does get you stoked um it it brings out that fire that made us love it in the first place that makes us love comic book movies for what they are because the first x-men movie was such a trailblazer into doing that it's like spider-man like you don't now we're used to comic book movies back then we weren't and like this movie has something to say about it and it's 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 worth hearing if you can it's worth watching if you can see it it's on hbo uh, hbo go or now either way uh, do yourself a solid check out logan so i got about wraps our show yeah just about uh so we have an exciting announcement we do uh uh in the in the coming weeks we are going to have a special guest 
Um, Jack from Jack's Movie Reviews, uh, which is a YouTube channel that does uh, video essays, uh, very good video essays that I've been watching probably about two years now. Um, He's going to be on the show, and he's going to be helping us review either Isle of Dogs or Ready Player One. We're still working on our schedule, um, but he's going to be here in the next couple of weeks. I have to give uh, all of the credit to Andy Draper for scooping this up. I, I... I remember when you told me you, you, this guy's interested in being on the show, and I was like, that, that's insane. What, who are you kidding? No, no. This is a real thing. I, I mean it. And if he bails now, I'm going to feel so stupid for saying this, but I think he's going to do it with us. Yeah, like we're, I'm crazy excited about it. It's going to be really cool. Uh, I'm really looking forward to having him on. Having him on. Um, I'm hoping, if I got to pick uh, out of these two, I'm hoping he can join us for Isle of Dogs, but either way, it'll be great. If he's on for Ready Player One, that'll be just as well, because honestly, I watched the new trailer for Ready Player One. I'm not sure how I feel about it. Uh, I'm honestly a little bit more wary than I was before, and I don't know why that is, so I guess I'll see it and find out. But um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to having him on the show. It's going to be it's gonna be a trip, no matter what yeah. happens. And, <laughs> so, yeah. and he's, he's also going to be taking over our Death of Cinema segment, uh, discussing video essays, um on youtube the various state of them and what you can find out there and what he's been doing the last few years so it's yeah. going to be really exciting i'll, I'll be interested I'm, I'm really looking forward to having kind of a, a nuanced discussion about uh film critique and where we've been and where it seems like we're going in the age of youtube um i think i'll have a lot to say about it he has a brilliant channel if you haven't seen it jack's movie reviews go check it out i'm a particular fan of his blade runner review i know you're big on his dark knight uh, yeah, he recently did a whole kind of Batman trilogy, the, or the Christopher uh, Nolan trilogy. Um, but he's really helped me understand things like uh, No Country for Old Men, uh, like you said, Blade Runner, The Shining. I mean, it's just really good, in-depth, and unique analysis. Right. Odds are he'll put us to shame. But we're, it's going to be great. We're going to have him on, and, and we're really looking forward to it. So check out Jack from Jack's Movie Reviews here in the next week or two. Um, depending on what shakes out, but stay tuned. Uh, next week, we are going to be seeing two in-theater releases. No streaming next week is going to be Isle of Dogs from Wes Anderson and the new, not Guillermo del Toro, but somebody else, I guess, uh, Pacific Rim Uprising. Both theatrical releases. We're doing a double feature. It's going to be great. I don't know when I'm going to find time to see both of them, but I'm going <laughs> to. It's going to be really cool. Andy, I'm curious no way you go double feature these and do them both like in one afternoon, right? You're oh, gonna split no, it no, I'll definitely, I'll probably, probably try to see Pacific Rim actually maybe on like a Thursday opening night and then see Isle of Dogs over the, over the weekend. Yeah. I'm going to go see them. Yeah. Split. There's the, you do them both at once. It's going to be a mess. Plus they're both so different tonally. I feel like whichever one you see first will tarnish the next one, right? If you see Isle of Dogs, it's going to be like a deep philosophical film and you see Pacific Rim, you can be like, yawn, this was, Two Gundams swinging, you know, swords at each other, and then if you see Pacific Rim first, then Isle of Dog, eh, it's a whole thing. So, either way, if you like the show, if you didn't like the show, if you want to get involved with the show and let us know what you think about the movies we talked about, or maybe the movies we missed, email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. You can also check out our incredible website, offscriptfilmreview.com. Uh, get involved with the show. Rate us on iTunes. Subscribe. Steal your friend's phone and subscribe for them. Do what you can, <laughs> man. Times is tough out there, all right? So yeah, uh, Andy, any 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 closing thoughts? Uh, no, this is the home of bold cinema. The home every week I forget to say that at the beginning. The home of bold cinema. Yes, that's us. The home of bold cinema. Thank you for listening. This has been off script. I'm Zach Lewis, and I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.